In Luke 8, 17, Jesus tells his disciples, for there's nothing hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. It's one of those verses that jumps off the pages and challenges the very nature of our lives. It's a verse about authenticity. You see, our world is desperate for something real, and Jesus, at his core, is authenticity. You see, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 4, 24, he actually says the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Authenticity is truth, and it will always lead to truth. As a worship leader, if the only time that I love Jesus and lead his people is when I have a microphone in front of me, I'm living a lie. But I believe that when we live a life of worship off the stage, it will allow us to pour a heart of worship from the stage. A sound check is designed for a band to get out all the feedback and all the noise and allow for their truest and best sound to come out of the speakers and capture the ears of everybody that's in the audience. When worship teams and worship leaders allow God to do a sound check on their hearts, motives, and actions, God can get all that junk out and weed out all of the things that are not of his nature, things like pride and insecurity. I believe that when we know his word and we know his voice, we can replicate his sound. And that's what our generation needs. We don't need another great show, another great band, another great speaker. We need more of God's presence. We need his sound to touch this earth. My prayer is that Soundcheck would challenge all of us to new levels of authenticity where we discover our purpose and excellence as worshipers of the one true King. Hey, well, thank you for coming this week. We'll see you guys next Sunday. No, just kidding. Uh, when your pastor's buddy and gay called me up, they said, Curtis, we want to have the best looking, most talented funniest guy that we could find to come and speak as the men are all out at our conference. That guy couldn't make it today, so I'm here instead, and uh, it's so good to be with you guys. Uh, as Jody mentioned, I'm a worship pastor from Washington, D.C. I'm actually at a church called National Community Church, and it's a multi-site church, and yeah, a lot of you guys probably know my pastor, uh, Mark Batterson. He's come to Salem Fields quite a few times. In fact, he wrote the foreword of my book, Soundcheck. So I tell people, uh, at least you know that part's gonna be really good. The forward's gonna be great. Uh, but it's such a joy to be here. I have a long relationship with Salem Fields. I've actually been here uh, quite a few times over the past six years to lead worship and uh, play at a festival, the, the Fire and Hope, I believe it was called, and we've been out at the Rubicon. And how cool is it that you have barbecue at church? You know, I didn't even have to go anywhere for dinner last night. I said, I'll take some brisket, that's fine with me. Um, and my wife loved it, too, because I asked for barbecue every night of the week, and she lets me indulge one night of the week. But when I'm here, I got no rules. You know, I can have brisket, I can have brisket after church. I love it. Uh, but we are just down the street, and uh, our heart is the same heart that you guys have. We want to see this world impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, we truly believe uh, that Jesus is still alive. He is calling out today, as we just sang, and that is what this generation needs. And I'm a worship pastor. I've got eight worship teams that I get to oversee, and that's just a testament that God has a sense of humor, uh, that somebody like me would be a pastor. And it just forces me to always be on my knees in prayer because I am not good enough. Anybody relate with that? I do not know uh, what I'm doing, but the Holy Spirit does. And we have this thing we love to say at our church. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you better than others. It makes you better than yourself. 
And the Holy Spirit is what we need today. And so my prayer is that this message would filter through the lens of the Holy Spirit today. Well, every year at the top of the year, we pick a word to kind of be our, our mantra, our vision, our basically the undercurrent of everything that we do. And this year, our word is authenticity. And I shared a little bit about it in that video. But how many of you guys have heard this word authenticity? It's kind of a buzzword in our culture right now. It's got to be authentic. Oh, if, if this isn't authentic, don't worry about it. Or, and honestly, it's a big word, but it really just translates into this. Webster's Dictionary says authentic is defined as real, genuine, and true. And so do we have any football fans out here? I see jerseys everywhere. My wife, now I'm a Steelers fan. My man, yeah, yeah. I don't want to make any enemies this morning. My, my man right here in the Ravens, I love you, dude, with the love of Jesus Christ. But we will beat you this year. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm a huge Steelers fan. I've been one since third grade. And my wife, she knows that. And so uh, this last year for Christmas, she got me an Antonio Brown jersey. Antonio is my dude. No, he doesn't know me, but he's my dude. And, and so what did I do? As soon as I got that jersey, you better believe I looked on the inside I looked at the tag. I looked for that one word. What was that word? Authentic NFL. I wanted it to be the real thing. I wanted to believe in my head that Antonio could have worn this on the field at some point. But authentic, that's what all of us desire to be. We want to be the truest and most real versions of ourselves because anything else is just a show. It's just a fake, and you're going to run out of energy. So I want to kick us off with a story this morning. In 1988, German record producer Frank Farian discovered a couple of young, aspiring male models, uh, Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan. Now, he quickly got them into the recording studio, and they recorded a dance pop album that would take the music world by storm. Armed with stunning drum beats, incredible dance moves, and the original Zoolander Blue Steel. You know what I'm talking about. Millie Vanilli would soon become a household name. Do we have any 80s fans in the house today? Oh, I'm in good company. I'm a huge 80s fan. My number one preset on my radio on XM is 80s on 8. I love all the bands. I love all the styles. 80s has got it going on. I was born in 1982, so I just like to tell people I grew up in the greatest area of music. I mean, we got, we got Millie Vanilla. We got Journey. We got The Cars. We got Men at Work. We got Whitney Houston. Come on. So good. Let's get back to the 80s. Well, Millie Vanilli, they gave us several chart-topping 80s classics like Blame It on the Rain and Girl, You Know It's True. And they pretty much just wrote the same song over and over again but gave it a different title. And somehow we were gullible enough to let it go to number one. I call that the Nickelback secret to success. The dynamic duo, they went on to sell 30 million singles sold out world tours, and even took home the Grammy for Best New Artist in 1990. But all that success was short-lived when on a concert on MTV in front of millions of adoring fans, it was revealed that the group had been lip-syncing the entire time. You see, backstage on a loop, something got caught. It was, girl, you know, girl, you know, girl, you know. The loop got caught on a little chain, and Robin Fab's scam was publicly exposed. They raced off the stage, and over the next couple of years, they lost their record deal, 
They lost their fans, and they actually became the first group ever to be stripped of a Grammy. Now, they tried to regroup. They tried to do it the right way. They wanted to release an authentic album. They even used their own names, Rob and Fab. They wrote their own songs. They even used their own voices in the studio. But just imagine the worst karaoke you've ever heard meet Zoolander, okay? Their new album barely sold 2,000 copies, and the group soon faded into musical oblivion. The secret was out, and the world doesn't like fake. Now, I was about nine or 10 years old when all this happened. It was also right around the time that I saw one of the greatest movies ever released in my generation, dare I say, part of the greatest trilogy of all time. No, I'm not talking about Back to the Future, although that's a close runner-up. I'm talking about Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Now, it's not even up for debate that this is the best of the Indiana Jones movies, although they did try to re-release another one with uh, different producers. It's not the same. This is vintage Harrison Ford we're talking about. And along with every other fourth grader, when I saw this movie, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I mean, when you see a near 50-year-old Harrison Ford jumping across trains, climbing through rat-infested sewers, and even walking across the invisible bridge, who wouldn't want to be an archaeologist? And he did it all while wearing his designer leather jacket, his bullwhip at his side, and of course, he, he actually made famous the half Amish, half cowboy hat. That's now, you know, every hipster in New York is wearing those. But Harrison Ford made it, made it popular. So I saved up my money with some of my best friends, and I went to archaeology camp. True story. Now, I was pretty surprised when about four days into the camp, all we had really done was dig for artifacts and discovered some fossils of some old leaves. Truth be told, I probably could have found what I found that week in my backyard for free, but I paid quite a bit of money for it. Don't go to archaeology camp. <laughs> But one thing they did teach us at archaeology camp that week that I've never forgotten was how to tell the difference between gold and pyrite, which is better known as fool's gold. Exactly. You see, we realized that if we bit into a chunk of 24 karat gold, we could leave a set of teeth marks. But if you bit into a chunk of pyrite, you're probably going to need some gold teeth because you just broke yours. And it's no shock to us that pyrite isn't worth anything. But if you can discover real gold, you can make quite a fortune. And if you don't believe me, tune into Discovery Channel tonight because there's about 35 shows dedicated to people trying to find gold everywhere from the Amazon to the Bering Sea. It's become a value that I've not forgotten throughout the years, telling the real from the fake. So let me fast forward to today. Um, now, if you look at my DVR, you're going to see that I pretty much watch two types of TV. And just pray for me. Pray for my wife, because uh, she has to put up with it all the time. I watch sports and reality TV. Okay, don't act like you're above that, okay? I think it honestly started when I was a kid. I just watched cops all the time when I was like 9 or 10 years old. And now I watch every reality TV uh, show under the sun. But one of my favorite reality TV shows takes place at a family-owned and operated pawn shop. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Three generations of family run this pawn shop, and they even allow their gullible friend Chumley to help out. God bless Chumley. Let's all pray for Chumley. 
But here's the cool thing about this show. Every day, people bring in new items through that door that they believe are highly valuable. Anything from antique cars to jewelry to musical instruments. And every now and then, one of those items is autographed. And uh, just a couple years ago, I was watching an episode, and this lady brings in this old 60s model guitar. Now, that guitar on its own was highly valuable. But she had four signatures on there that made it significantly more valuable. John, Paul, Ringo, and George. Now, we know him as the Beatles. And in fact, if this guitar was truly authentic, that would have been worth over $100,000. So the shop doesn't just randomly shell out that kind of money. They call an authenticator. So the authenticator comes in. He puts the autograph and the signature under the microscope, studying every nuance of that signature, making sure that it's the real deal. Unfortunately for this lady who had the guitar, it wasn't the real deal. And not only was it not worth $100,000, it was actually devalued the originally very valuable 60s model guitar. Basically worthless. I think you might see where I'm going with this. The authenticator came in and discovered his true value. In Luke 8, verse 17, we get a picture of the great authenticator. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Jesus' words to his disciples. In 2014, a study by Conan Wolf revealed that the greatest thing that consumers look for in a brand that they support isn't low price point or innovation, it's authenticity. So does anybody here have like a favorite brand? It could be any, Nike to Cheetos, it doesn't matter. It could be your favorite brand. I, so I'm a huge Apple guy, okay? I've got the iPad, the iPhone. If they made the iShoe, I would be the first in line to go get that. I don't know what it would do, but it's... It's an Apple product. I love it. And their big thing is just being authentic. They care about the product. They always want to make it better. Authenticity is the number one thing that consumers look for. And here's the key. God is after the same thing in us. John 4.23, Jesus is talking to his disciples and the people at the time. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. How many of us want to be that kind of worshiper that the Father actually seeks? It's a hunting term. The Father goes after us. He seeks after us. I want to be that kind of worshiper. And what Jesus is saying in Luke 8 and John 4 is this. You cannot live a double life. Who you are when no one's watching will always eventually pour out into who you are when everyone's watching. You can fool people some of the time, but in the end, the true you will always be exposed like we saw with Millie Vanilli. And Jesus said these words at a time uh, where there was just so many false gods in the culture. And I'm not talking about like, you know, cars and money. I'm talking like literal wooden and silver objects. Like false gods were everywhere at that time. And the ones that claimed to be uh, living for the one true God, many times we're just doing so on the outside. We call them Pharisees and Sadducees and even hypocrites. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, to read about these people in the Bible and just be like, ah, man, you guys got it wrong. When all along, aren't we often guilty of the same thing? 
You see, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs. It's pretty on the outside, but on the inside, it was death. Now, part of my story, uh, my parents had me when they were in high school. It was one of those shotgun weddings, if you know what I'm talking about. And I can talk about them because they're not here this morning. Uh, but no, my dad and mom, um, they had me at 17 and 15. And, uh, you know, right away, my dad, as he was about to become a dad, he needed to get a job because babies ain't cheap. And so his first job was working as a dairy hand. And he worked with cows and chickens and goats. And he told me about his take on Matthew 23, these whitewashed tombs. You see, when you get a lot of cows together, some of you guys with experience on farms might know what I'm talking about. They make a mess. It ain't pretty. Milk is nice and pretty. But the cows ain't nice and pretty. And they make quite a bit of a mess. And a lot of it ends up on the walls of the barn. And so every couple of years, my dad said they would go in there. And instead of scrape off all the filth, they would just paint over it with a nice, pretty layer of white paint. Literally whitewashing the walls. So that's what I think of every time I read Matthew 23, when Jesus calls these hypocrites whitewashed tombs. Think of all the layers of filth underneath, but it's just pretty on the outside. And how many times are we guilty of that same thing? We put on the face. We put on a nice, happy smile. Everything's cool, but on the inside, there's a battlefield. We can all agree on this. Our world right now is desperate for something real. Desperate for authenticity. And yet everywhere we turn, we see the alternative, don't we? Seems like every week there's a new political scandal that rises to the surface. Or one of our favorite sports stars is found to be taking steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, and sadly, even in our church culture, uh, every now and then, a pastor or a worship leader makes headlines for not the best reasons. We've got Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and for the kids out there, Snapchat. I don't know what Snapchat is. Never used it. Never going to. But with all of these social medias, we're all published authors. You know that? When you tweet something or you put it on Facebook, you are now a published author. And your words are out there for everyone to see. And we all have a million different opinions. And we post what we want the world to think of us, right? Oftentimes, we'll take a picture on Instagram and go through like 30 different filters. You know what I'm talking about? You take that selfie at the beach, try to find the best filter where you look like supermodel. That filter is yet to be invented for me. But we want the world to see us in a perfect light. And so, you know, when we go to restaurants, we're taking pictures of our food. Like this is the four-star meal that we eat every single day. When we go on vacation, we take a picture of that amazing beach house that we might be staying at for three days. But it's like, hey, this is my life. Y'all be jealous of this. On the inside, beneath all the filters and all the screens, we find something different very often. You see, authenticity comes with vulnerability. If we want to be real about who we are, we need to be real with each other and certainly with God because that's what he's after as we read in John 4 and Luke 8. So I want to talk a little bit about how we live out a life of authentic worship because that's what we're called to do, right? Authentic worship. Worship is not a set of songs that we might sing every weekend uh, worship is a lifestyle, and I want to dive into that. Is that okay if we dive into that a little bit today? 
Whether it's okay or not, that's where I'm going. So we're going to go there. Um, but this idea of authentic worship, we, we see it um, in Romans 12, verse 1. And it actually is from this Hebrew word, avodah, which literally translates into your daily work, your living. It has nothing to do with an acoustic guitar or song lyrics or a chord chart. Here's where worship comes from. Romans 12, 1 says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, it's the six days and 21 hours outside of a church service that make worship authentic. And singing our songs on a Sunday or Saturday evening is not the end-all, be-all to worship, but merely the physical expression of the heart's position. And I love to think of worship like this. Uh, It's an exclamation point on what God's done this past week because he's been faithful. And it's a springboard into what God's going to do this coming week because he'll still be faithful. God never changes, amen? He's an unfailing love. He's steadfast in all of his ways. And so I love singing songs like This Is Amazing Grace, what we kicked off with, because it's like, man, ah, that's why I have life. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, because I've got amazing grace this morning. When I sing a song like Oh, Come to the Altar, I'm just always aware of how amazing forgiveness is, because I've made some mistakes this past week. So I let the songs become a launch pad for my life. And as I read Romans 12 and and John 4 and and Luke 8, I used to read those through the lens of sin. Now, how many of us have done that often with scripture? Like we we read it and we want to come out supercharged, but we just get done reading the Bible and we're like, woe is me, I'm so bad, like I'm so guilty. And I, I was raised a pastor's kid, so I'm a PK. My initials are KP. Has nothing to do with this message. I think that's really cool. But, man, I was raised in the church, so oftentimes what that comes with is a side of guilt because I'm just always around it. I'm always around, and I lose the character of Jesus and the mistakes that his people often made. So I would read Luke 8, 17, for nothing is done in secret that won't be made manifest. I would read that through the lens of sin. And I began to think, okay, well, if I am cursing in my car, uh, if I'm angry at my family, if I'm on websites I shouldn't be on, when no one's around, well, well, eventually that's going to pour out when I'm around the church. Eventually that's going to come out when I'm surrounded by my community. And that's true, yes. But it's also a verse that's true about the way we worship. You see, if I'm praying every single morning, if I'm reading God's, God's word every single day, if I'm worshiping when no one's around, if I'm loving my neighbor, serving my family, then that too will pour out when I'm surrounded by the church. And just a side note, um, I love the Bible. I love reading the Bible. And in fact, you know, I, I live in D.C., which is the number one uh, worst traffic in the nation. Woohoo! we did it. Um, So oftentimes, to combat the need to lash out, I'll listen to the Bible app, because it's really hard to curse out the car next to you when you're listening to the Psalms, okay? And so that's just one way that I can get God's word continuously in my spirit, find moments throughout the day where we can live out an authentic life of worship. I believe how you worship privately sets the tone for authentic worship publicly. 
It's when it becomes all about God's promise and not just the production. It's about his presence. And as we worship, here's what we find out, right? As we worship in spirit and in truth, we set our eyes on Jesus. And just like the old hymn says, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Our problems don't seem so big because it's in the context of how big our God is. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I love the Old Testament because there's all these really cool battles. And I love Braveheart and Gladiator. Those are like my two favorite movies. I got you, bro. But there's all these amazing battles in the Old Testament. My favorite is in 2 Chronicles 20. And this is where King Jehoshaphat is faced by three different nations that are about to attack Israel. Things are looking pretty grim. And he calls on his prophet and he says, what is, the, what is the word of the Lord? How do we approach this? And his prophet says, here's the word of the Lord. You're to lead your army with the singers and the musicians. To lead the battle with worship. So that's like Obama calling me up and saying, hey, get the acoustic guitars. I know we got the helicopters and tanks, but your band's going to go out in front. I'm calling in sick that day, Okay. So Jehoshaphat puts his singers and musicians in front of the army, and what happens? They begin to lift up praises, and it tells us in the 20th chapter of 2 Chronicles that all three nations turn on one another. They devour until not one last man is left standing. The Israelites didn't even have to pull a sword out of a sheath. The worship went out, and the problems devoured one another. And I've learned through the years that as we worship, even through hardship, God is able to take care of our problems because we set our eyes on eternal things instead of earthly things. Worship doesn't just help us forget about our problems. It helps us remember our eternal identity. We are worshipers, and you all are worshiping something, whether we're worshiping God or we're worshiping a job or we're worshiping a relationship or, or we're worshiping some kind of image that we believe is the American dream. We're all worshiping something. We're created to worship. So when we remember our identity, we become our truest selves, and that happens in worship. And as I bring this thing in for a close, I want to talk about one of my favorite people in the Bible, David. Now, as a worship leader, you could probably guess I spent a lot of time reading about David. I mean, he wrote half of the Psalms, which is a book of 150 songs, smack dab in the middle of the Bible. I like to call it Israel's greatest hits, okay? I always like to imagine some kind of an infomercial with David in the background with his staff looking all swagger. And it's like, do you need to repent? Psalm 51 is for you, you know? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150 to charge your worship life. But I think David goes down as arguably the greatest king in the Old Testament for one reason. He was authentic. He knew who he was. He knew his identity. Even as a teenager, when you look at David, he was off in the fields singing songs to God as he was shepherding his sheep. Psalm 22, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He writes songs like this when no one's around. So it shouldn't be any shock to us that he's elevated from the fields to the palace because God saw his authentic heart. And even when he goes out to fight Goliath in one of the greatest battles of all time, he shows up on the battlefield. This giant is calling out, oh, who are you, Israel? I defy your God. And, and David shows up and says, who is this Philistine? I'll take him on. So he goes to Saul. And what does Saul do? He tries to put on his armor. 
because that's what everybody else is wearing. Here, put this on. This will protect you. How many times do people do that with us? Here, let me put my armor on you. This is who you should be. This is what you should do. This is the label. And David doesn't, doesn't do it. He just takes it off. And in fact, he goes to a brook, picks up a few stones, goes to the battlefield and points at Goliath and says, I come at you with a sling in the name of the Lord. See, David knew who he was and he knew whose he was. That is authentic identity. And all throughout David's life, he kept realigning his heart with God's heart. When he was running for his life from Saul and he's in the cave of Adullam, he comes to the presence of God. When he had just messed up royally, and I mean that literally, with Bathsheba, commits adultery, commits murder, he repents and comes back to the presence of God. And even in his old age, on his deathbed, we see his last few Psalms being written back in the presence of God. David always knew where to run. And he would realign his heart. And he never had to push his position or power because he allowed God to fight his battles for him. We have this thing that our pastor says all the time. Don't seek opportunity. Seek God. Then opportunity will seek you. That's what happened with David. So I want to close with three general ideas on how we can live out daily this life of authentic worship. And it comes down to this. Know his voice. Know his word and know his presence. Know his voice, know his word, and know his presence. Now, I've got two small kids, Nora and Moses. They're four and two years old. And trust me when I tell you this, we have watched every movie in the book if it has to do with penguins. Okay, they love penguins. I've watched March of the Penguins with Morgan Freeman narrating it. And Morgan Freeman could narrate paint drying, and I'd probably watch that movie. He's just got one of those cool voices. I've watched Happy Feet 1 and 2 and 16. You know, this is, if there's a way a penguin can dance, I've seen how it's done. Okay? But one thing that I picked up from all these penguin movies is this. Um, a penguin can identify its parents' voice as it sings out to them. You see, in the middle of an Arctic storm, a parent penguin will sing out a song, and their kids will identify it even from 100 yards away. They know their parents' voice, and they come running back home and they find safety and shelter in their parents. I think we're a culture that's great at hearing, but we're awful at listening. And there's a difference. And we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. Oftentimes, I'll have a conversation with somebody, and I'm only listening to form a reply, not listening to truly understand. Are we listening to God? Are we making time in our busy lives and busy schedules to be in that still, small presence Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. See, we're so busy. Time doesn't find us, does it? We've got to make time. So I just want to encourage you guys, make time to be still and hear God's voice. Know his word. That's the second point. You can't tell me that God never speaks to you if you never open his word. See, God is continuously speaking through his Holy Spirit and through an incredible book called the Bible. We've got to make time to get in his word. And here's the cool thing about the Bible. If you read it long enough, you'll start to, rem you'll start to remember your identity. Because all from Genesis to Revelation, there are moments where God reveals his presence to his people. And I think we're in a day and age where we have a bit of an identity crisis. Nobody knows who we are. We're, 
every which way we're going to self-help books. There's been more self-help books in the last 10 years than the whole 100 years before that. We have an identity crisis. And I believe as the church, we should stand for who we know we are, right? If you don't know who you are, spend some time in Romans 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We call it the great eight. And it starts with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It goes on to say that we're adopted sons and daughters of the most high king, that we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his plans and purposes. It says that we're more than conquerors. Romans 8, 31 says, if our God is for us, who can be against us? Spend some time in Romans 8. That's an identity chapter. The more you read, the more he reveals. Amen? And the last is this, know his presence. You can't just know someone by reading about them. You got to spend time with them. Make time for God's presence. Trust me, there's nothing like it on this planet. In God's presence, we find fullness of joy. And we read about the fruits of the Spirit. There's nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. All those fruits of the Spirit, you know how you get more of those fruits of the Spirit? You don't seek more love. You don't seek more joy. You seek the Spirit. Because when you have more of the Holy Spirit in your life, the fruits of the Spirit start to manifest in your life. And you'll find more joy and more love and more peace. All of that comes from God's presence. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of my favorite promises of the Bible, says, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. So can I encourage us to do that today? I want to close with a song, and uh, it's a song by one of my favorite songwriters. His name is Matt Redman. And he wrote this song at a time where his church, about 20 years ago, was going through one of these identity crises. Um, church services had become a little bit more about the lights and the production rather than worshiping Jesus. People were talking more about the color of the carpet and the shade of lights than the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So the pastor just began to preach this message about taking all of that away and just getting back to the heart of worship, getting back to the heart of who Jesus is. So Matt goes home and in his bedroom, he writes these words, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it when it's all about you. And he, he brought it to his church. And of course, you know, over the next couple of years, they took away the band and they actually had a time where the congregation would just sing out songs. Whatever was on the congregation's heart, they would sing out a song. It was a little awkward for the first couple of weeks, but eventually people found the heart of worship in a song that they lifted up from their own hearts. And so piece by piece, the bands were put back on stage and God's presence became the focal point of every service. So can we stand? We're going to sing this song. It's called The Heart of Worship. And the thing that I love about worship songs is they're not just meant to be sung on a screen. They're actually prayers from our heart. So if you're at a place in your life where you just feel like, man, I've gotten away from it. I don't know if I could say I'm living an authentic life with Jesus. I'm going through the motions. I'm, I'm showing up to church. That's all it is for me. It's just a checkbox. It's all right. I've been there. It's 
scriptures tell us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his anger. So I just want to encourage you, whatever you have to do this morning, whether that's sit down or kneel or stand, close your eyes, lift your hands, whatever can make this more than just a song, but a prayer. I just want to encourage us to do that together, okay? Let's sing these words. When the music fades. And when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply Longing just to bring something that's worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things. It's all about you. 
Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we just thank you this morning for this beautiful day that you've given us and this shift in weather. And I thank you so much for bringing Curtis here this morning and just for the words that you've um, given to him and placed in his heart this morning and that he shared with us. And I just ask that you will just use those words in us and to help us to be better, more authentic people. And thank you for everything you do for us and just go with us through this week. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, Curtis, for being here. It's been an awesome weekend with Curtis. Don't forget to stop by his table as you're leaving. He's going to be back there in a few minutes. Get to know him. He's a great guy. Pick up his book and CDs and all that. And we hope to see you guys back here next week. Have a great